Um, as we begin, um, I want to highlight a phrase that comes out of our scripture this morning that really got caught my attention and I really struggled with. And we'll get to the whole, the whole scripture in context here in a moment. But um, as we start, I want to get with this, and I think it's a, a slide, I think, hold on. Preparing a sermon for two different churches that have two different sets of things going on. Sometimes it gets confusing. But this is the verse that comes right out of our scripture, and it, it's just kind of lived in my head for the past couple of weeks. And it says, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, this sounds ridiculous in our culture, just on face value. Somebody, he, was, was sad because he had a lot of money. Now, in our culture, there's a lot of problems you can have. You can have, as a pastor, I have conversations with people all the time about what their needs are, what their concerns are, what's making them sad, what they're struggling with, right? Like all the different problems in the world. I, I can't say I've ever had somebody come to my office and say, Pastor, I'm having a really hard time. I've just got too much money. I don't, have you had that conversation with anybody that was sad and struggling, life was too hard because they had too much money? Like our culture seems to... to, to, to explain problems usually because we don't have enough stuff, right? It's a lack of wealth. It's a lack of money. It's a lack of resources that's causing the problems. And, and, and that's just kind of by default. And then you add in, uh, hopefully there's nobody that's like worked in marketing or anything that I'm stepping on toes, but like marketing teams, marketing companies try and convince us that what we do have isn't good enough, um, that what they're trying to sell, these companies are trying to sell, we, we would be better off if they bought the new version, the, the updated one, or the one that we had before, or remember how great it was when we had that thing and you don't have it anymore, so you better go get it back, and this time it costs more, and all that stuff. Like these commercials work to point out, these ads work to point out the lack that you have in your life. Your life would be better if you had more. And so the, the question uh, of how much money how much stuff, how much wealth do I need? Our culture generally answers that by saying more. You have billionaires doing all kinds of things, trying to get more money because billions aren't enough, right? The culture says more is enough. Having too much wealth is rarely, if ever, the problem. <laughs> Again, how many times have you been part of that conversation? I'm um, just sad. I was just counting my money and I have too much. Um, this young man, this man went away sad because he had great wealth. He said that having too much money was the problem. And so we're going to continue our sermon series this week, um, looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. We're going to read through that, that scripture. Again, if you don't have a Bible in the chairs, there's these uh, fancy looking things. Um, not only can you use it during service, but if you need a Bible, take it a home. It is yours, um, but it'll be on the screen as well. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, um, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your mother and father. Teacher, he declared, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. 
At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Uh, Pray with me. Father, we, as Paul read scripture this morning from Hebrews, um, about the word that comes from you, that rightly divides, that is sharper than two-edged sword. We are grateful for that word. Um, Not just words on a page that we can refer back to and read again or seek inspiration or find out information about you, but it is an active word. It's a word that is working in our lives that helps us understand what is godly and what is not, what is from the kingdoms of the world and what is from the kingdom that belongs to you. May your word become flesh through us in the same way that it did in Jesus. May we embody your teaching, your will, your character to a world that needs to know you. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So the scripture that we just read a moment ago Uh, It directly follows the scripture that uh, Tabitha shared with us last week in which Jesus was talking about uh, how kids are welcome and how kids uh, can show us how to receive the kingdom, right? So Jesus was doing it without qualification, without um, questions, no further explanation needed. Children are welcome in the kingdom of God, right? Like that was last week's scripture. This story happens right after that in Mark 10. And so this man might have been part of the crowd that witnessed that conversation. And so he heard Jesus say, these kids, and pointed to these kids, are welcome in the kingdom of God. And he might be going, well, I'm a rich guy. I keep the rules. I keep the commandments. What do I need to do? If these kids get in, what do, what, what do I do to get eternal life? What do I do to get into this kingdom, right? Like you can see how this question isn't just coming out of the blue. It's probably in a response to Jesus valuing kids. So this is an ongoing, this is part two of last week's story, right? It just keeps rolling on. So this man runs up to Jesus right after and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? What must I do to receive eternal life? I've heard a lot of sermons on this text over the years. Um, This scripture shows up obviously in Mark, but there's similar stories in Luke and Matthew um, with a little few details changed here or there. But I've heard this the scripture preached and taught a bunch of times. And in my mind, I've started to imagine it as the Antiques Roadshow 
kind of thing, where Jesus is the, the expert, you know, Antiques Roadshow, right, where people bring their stuff to whatever, and uh, this place that was hosting the roadshow, and you bring your stuff, and you're like, I, I bought this at a garage sale, or my grandma gave this to me, and, and I thought it might be something. Is it something? And they, they place it before the expert, and the expert looks at it and says, oh, this is nice, right? be great in your basement or looks at it and says hey this is this is an original whatever and it's it's worth five hundred thousand dollars and like jesus is that expert that this young man comes before me says i keep the law right like what do i what do i got here <laughs> right what am i working with uh what's the value of this right where are we at um so i've kind of started imagining the kind of antiques roadshow or or if you're a fan of reality tv show contest stuff, talent stuff, like America's Got Talent, that type of thing. Like Jesus is the judge slash coach, and the, the young man gets up on the platform, introduces himself, and, and Jesus says, all right, what do, you, what do you got for us? What have you prepared for us today? And the young man says, oh, I'm very righteous. I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. Um, does that get me into heaven, or what do I need to do to go to the next round? And, and Jesus responds, you know, um, you know, it's good that you keep the commands. That's, that's good. Like, that's a good start. Um, but if you want to make it to the next level, if you want the, the ticket to round two, like you're going to have to sell some stuff and give that away and then come follow me. Like that's how you get to the next round. Um, this man seems sincere as he comes to Jesus. Right? This doesn't seem to, there's moments where the Pharisees try to do gotcha with Jesus, like try and trap him. But this man seems sincere. He righteously keeps the commands, so he's trying to do the right thing. Right? This is what religious teachers are telling him he should be doing, and he's doing it. He recognizes Jesus as a good teacher, and so he acknowledges Jesus' status or the wisdom of Jesus' teaching. Um, he ran up and he fell on his knees in front of Jesus, so again, recognizing that there's something special about this Jesus, and responded accordingly, taking a, a posture, position of, of uh, submission or honoring Jesus, right? Um, but verse 21, for whatever reason, jumped out at me this time in a way that I'd never noticed before when I'd read this. And verse 21 says, Jesus looked at this man and loved him. So this man has come sincerely asking this question and keeps the law, keeps the commandments. And it says that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. And like I said a moment ago, this same story happens in Luke and it happens in Matthew. You can find the rich young man, the rich young ruler. There's some details that are a little bit different. But in those ones, they don't mention that Jesus loved this guy. It's not part of the story. Um, and so in the past, I've interpreted this, I've understood this as like Jesus being maybe confrontational, Jesus being hard-nosed, Jesus um, confronting a, well, imagine in my mind, I imagined a rich, maybe arrogant, maybe self-entitled guy, you know, he's maybe part of the top of the societal elite in his community, and Jesus is going to knock him down a peg or two, right? This is Jesus kind of representing for the, the poor, representing for the meek or whatever, and going to give this guy what for. Um, I don't think I've ever said what for before, but okay. Um, we'll go with it. Um, but he's, he's representing, um, you know, kind of an animosity towards the, the wealthy class, the rulers, but I read this, this this time in preparation. Jesus loved this man. And so everything Jesus tells this man from, from here forward needs to be interpreted through the lens of love. This isn't Jesus judging. This isn't Jesus condemning. This isn't Jesus 
trying to get rid of the guy. But everything he does after this comes from Jesus' love for this man. And this is, that's important to remember. So as we move forward, remember that when Jesus says words, it's because he loves this man. When he invites him to do something, it's because he loves and cares about this man. What Jesus does in response to this man's question is he invites the man to free himself of his wealth and everything that comes with it. Right? All the responsibilities, all the obligations, all the work that... Most likely wealth was wrapped up in, in land, and so like that's a lot of work to work land or manage, manage workers, employees, whatever. Like you got a lot invested to take care of your wealth. And Jesus is inviting this man to be free of all that. Let go of that and follow him. Jesus calls this man to be one of his followers. Again, coming from a place of love. This isn't a gotcha moment. It's not a trick question. This is actually the same invitation that Jesus gave to the fishermen on their boats. Drop your nets and come follow me. This is the same invitation they gave to the tax collector that he called to be his disciples. Like, go give the money back to the people you've wronged and then come follow me. And so this young man gets the invitation to be a follower of Jesus, a direct personal invitation. Go get rid of the things that are going to hold you back and come follow me. And in this story, the way that Mark structures the scripture, the, the, the contrast that's, that's here is the possessing of things and the lacking of things, right? So as we move through the story, continue to pay attention to, to what is being possessed and what is being lacked. What are you lacking, right? So Jesus tells this man an honest answer to his question. The man says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life, to receive the kingdom of God? What do I need to get this kind of life that you were just talking about for those kids? And Jesus says, what you possess is creating the lack that you are trying to fill. This upside down kingdom, the worldly stuff that you possess, creates a lack in the kingdom of God. What you need for eternal life is to follow me, says Jesus. And to follow me, you have to let go of your worldly treasures. The treasures of the kingdom of this world occupied a place in this man's life that, that where the treasures of the kingdom of God should dwell. Right? To follow Jesus, you'd have to let go. You can't bring all this stuff with you. So Jesus is telling this man, to grab a hold of eternal life, you have to let go of the treasures of the kingdoms of this world. Now, could you imagine if Jesus showed up here today after, after church or during church and appeared to you and you had the opportunity to go uh, and ask him questions about, like, what, what does God have for my life? Like, what do you desire? What is the will? What do you want for me? Um, how do I get the life that God wants for me? And so you're able to ask Jesus that face-to-face. Wouldn't that be awesome, right? Like that would be with clarity, no, no confusion at all. You just hear the words coming out of Jesus' mouth. This is what God has for you. And Jesus, in response to that question, tells you this. He says, I'm going to be traveling around the Midwest for the next few years. I want you to come with me. I need you to sell your house. I need you to quit your job. I need you to tell your family goodbye for a while. I need you to take everything that you have and just give it away and then just get on the bus because we're going. Right? 
As much as we'd like to think that we would jump at the opportunity to follow, and I've, I've made this comment, like when, when I had the opportunity to travel in Israel, like how awesome would it have been to follow Jesus around in person and to see and hear the things in person. I mean, the, the scriptures are great and I'm grateful for them and God can use them in amazing ways, but how awesome would it be to follow him in person? But in this moment, I'm thinking, ugh, I'm making a list of what it would cost me, right? Sell the house. Sell your stuff, cars, clear out your bank account, give it all away and get on the bus. We're going to go around the Midwest for a couple years. Tell your friends, see ya. Tell your family, see ya. I was making a list of things that, that this call would, would cost me. And, I, and that's what was going on here. This rich man in the scripture was making that list. And he said, yeah, the cost was too high. And it made him sad. He was, he was sad because he had great wealth, and because he had great wealth, the cost was great. Scripture tells us that where your treasure is, there's where your heart is as well. If your treasure is in the kingdoms of this world, then your heart will be connected to the things of this world. If your treasure is in heaven, then you, your heart will be connected with things in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And that's why Jesus in the Scripture says it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because God doesn't like rich people, right? And, and think kingdom of heaven. If you remember the first week, this isn't a geographic place that you're going. This is the, the kingdom of heaven is the reign and rule of God. It's the place uh, where things have been ordered the way that God wants them to be, the things that are uh, under the authority of God, right? So it's, it's really hard, he says, Jesus says, for rich people to enter into uh, places where things are ordered according to the will and desire that God has for them, right? And again, it's not because God doesn't like rich people. That's not what's going on here. It's not contempt. It's not judgment. Again, Jesus is saying these things from a position of love for this young man. But he's saying it because rich people have the most treasure in the kingdom of this world, Right? That's why it's hard. They have more stuff that anchors them into the kingdoms of the world. They have more stuff to lose in the kingdoms of this world. I mean, how hard is it for you to quit something when you are winning at it? If you are moving up in the kingdom of this world, if you have status and wealth and, and people envy you and, you and you've made it, it's hard to leave. It's hard to quit. And so this young man, this rich young man walks away terribly sad because he had all that wealth. When the disciples saw this man walk away, they began wondering if they had made a mistake too. <laughs> they started questioning. They've, they've recently heard Jesus talk about how the kids are welcome and he had just kind of chewed them out a moment ago for keeping the kids away. But they'd also heard Jesus several times talk about how he was going to die. And so this is why I love Peter, because in verse 28 of Mark chapter 10, he shouts out this. We have left everything to follow you. <laughs> that guy held on to it. Like, maybe he was the smarter one of the bunch, right? We've left everything to follow you. That's Peter's confession. This verse has specific meaning, important meaning for me in my life. There was, there was a, a season in my life where I wrestled with this, and I, and I still wrestle with this every time God, I sense God calling me to do something or, or, or to move in some way. Um, 
But there was a, a time when, when Jonas was little, uh, Jessica and I were living in the house that my, was my parents' dream house. I've told a little bit about this before, but my dad saved up for years, working, saving, being smart with money because he wanted to buy wooded land and build a log home in this land, wooded, that's where he wanted to live. He wanted to live in a log home in the woods. And we bought that land my sixth grade year, uh, or fifth grade year, and built the house. And like three and a half years after the house was built was when my dad passed away. And it always felt like unfinished business. It felt like a terrible tragedy that my dad never got to like, retire and live off in this. I mean, he planned this for 20 years, since the time before he and my mom even got married. Um, and then he was gone. And so a time came when Jessica and I were married, and my mom sold us the house And I felt like it was my job, my opportunity to live out his dream. There's a lot of emotions tied to that house. And then Jonas had just come along and I wanted to see him grow up playing in the woods that I played in, riding dirt bikes and the trails that I had made. And and at one point, it looked like I was going to pastor a church that was a couple miles away. Um, That church imploded. There was a conflict was refused to be resolved, and people left, and, and there was nothing for me to inherit. I closed that church as a, as a pastor. There was, we, we shut it down after three years there. And so we were found in this moment where it was, uh, I was holding on to this house, but I was also wondering what God had for us next. And, I mean, it was what, year, two years of, two years of asking God to open the door, but nothing happening. I was working a job that I pretty much didn't like to pay the bills, to pay for this house. And Jessica finally said, I don't think the call to ministry is going to happen until you're willing to put both feet into that, into that call. It's like the house, this dream, this vision that you have for your life and your family seems to be competing with, with moving forward. And, and I remember around that time as when I ran across this Mark 10 verse 28. Peter said, we have left everything to follow you. And I thought, that's not my confession today. I haven't. I've refused to let go. Now that, I mean, we worked through that. Eventually I told my mom, hey, we're, we're selling the house. We went and got an apartment and I went back to school, started working at all of that and the story moves on. And the, every one of these stories doesn't have to be so, so dramatic. Every time we move, in fact, when you guys called us to be your pastor, one of the thoughts in the back of my mind was, well, maybe this is when God tells me to sell my motorcycle. I'm just, I'm, I've been like holding my breath. Every time God moves us and changes, like I'm waiting for him to say, well, now it's going to cost you. And he never does, which is great. So we still have the bike. But I, I anticipate like, is God going to ask me to let go of that too? Because we've moved. Jessica's, her resume looks like a grocery list because every time we move, she's the one, like I, I got pastor jobs and she's the one trying to find places to plug in and support our family. Our kids have been in multiple schools and, and that's hard and we say goodbye to friends and family and, and so I've wrestled with this, Mark 10, 28. We've left everything to follow you. I, I didn't for the longest time and, and I don't want to make that mistake. I want that to be my confession, Right? So, so Peter says that, and Jesus responds to these disciples by saying this promise. And I love that he says this. This has been good news to me. He says that 
Whoever gave up their lives, their family, their possessions, etc., in worldly kingdoms to follow Jesus will not lack in the kingdom of God. <laughs> what a great promise. If you let go of stuff in the kingdom of this world, Jesus is promising that you won't lack in the kingdom of God. This sermon series is about the kingdom of God, the rule of God that orders things according to God's will, according to God's desire. And this kingdom is radically different than the kingdoms of this world. And the main difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God um, is not a difference of physical versus spiritual, although we oftentimes kind of default to that. Um, The difference between the kingdoms... Uh, of God and the kingdom of this world are how things are valued and how things are used. Now, let, me, let me explain this. It's kind of a difficult concept, but um, the rich young man came to Jesus and even though his wealth would secure his place in the kingdom of this world, like his status, his wealth, he, he made it. He was successful. He left sad when looking at everything he possessed through the lens of the kingdom of God. He didn't have the right stuff in one kingdom. So you see, it's, it's, not, it's not that one is spiritual and the other is physical. It's the values of that same physical wealth is radically different. In the Bible, we see that wealth is celebrated in the kingdom of God when it is given away. Wealth isn't celebrated in the kingdom of God when it's accumulated, right? Um, Accumulating great amount of wealth isn't a virtue in the kingdom of God. Wealth is celebrated in the kingdom of God when it's given away. Jesus says the, the phrase treasures in heaven numerous times, and it always is referring to giving away wealth, giving away money to take care of people in need. So we can run into a lot of problems if we, if we start making it a, a kingdom that is spiritual versus a kingdom that is physical, Right? That's not the difference between the two. We, we create a lot of problems when we think about that. Um, we start thinking that Jesus is king of the spiritual things. He cares about where you go when you die. He cares about your soul. He wants you to pray. Like He's king, king of spiritual things, but he's not king or not lord of the physical things in your life. Let's see how this is problematic. There's an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. The early church wrestled with this. And we don't have time to unpack that today. Um, but the result of Gnosticism was that it, it makes the kingdom of God something that isn't at work in our lives right now. It's a spiritual thing. It's a, it's a theoretical thing. It's what happens after you die. It's something that, that is conditions of some spiritual ghost solely thing. And the kingdom of God isn't that concerned about your physical life. Jesus cares for my soul, but not for my body or for the world in which I live. This is, becomes problematic. Um, we start thinking, if we go along these lines, that we have to be obedient to Jesus when it comes to spiritual matters. So I can go to heaven when I die and all of that, but I can kind of ignore him when it comes to the rules and his teachings and commands when it comes to the affairs of this world because he's king of a spiritual kingdom and what I do physically isn't as important. For example, how I spend my money. Does Jesus care about that? Does he have authority in that realm? How I care for others, what I do to my enemies, how I use power and influence. 
if Jesus is king of spiritual things, then those remain unchecked by Jesus. And sadly, church culture today, I'm not picking on First Church. I really tried to emphasize that I wasn't picking on, on Hope Church because I'm not trying to create a headache for Pastor Will while he's on sabbatical. Um, but church culture at large today doesn't seem all that interested in living the way that Jesus told us to live. I read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus reveals his, his great teaching. This is how Christians should live together. It's a beautiful image of, of people living in peace in relationship with God and with each other. Right? There's shalom, good life. Right? We live together the way that God intended us to live. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is. Jesus, as king, is announcing his instruction on how to live together. And I read that and I grieve that we don't live that way. I read where Jesus tells his followers that, that they will be divided into groups of sheep and groups of goats. Matthew 25, if you're familiar or want reference of this. Matthew 25, Jesus says, we'll divide them into sheep and goats. And if you, if you have your Bible, there's probably a heading in there that says something about the judgment of Jesus or the, the, the condemnation or, or, or whatever. Like there's probably some sort of thing about judgment. Which... When you hear the criteria that Jesus uses in Matthew 25, and I keep saying Matthew 25 because I want you to be able to look it up if you don't think that this is what Jesus says. (laughs) He says, I'm going to divide you into sheep and the goats based on how you cared for the hungry, how you cared for the thirsty, how you cared for the poor, how you cared for the sick, how you took care of strangers and foreigners, and if you visited people in prison. Those are Jesus' exact words. He says, that is how I'm going to, as your king, judge you and divide you into two groups. And yet that, that message, when taken on his face, sounds really profound, like this is important. And yet it doesn't seem to shape how much church culture engages the world around it. So I think that the, has to do with the fact that, that much of church culture has gotten in the habit of seeing Jesus as king of spiritual things, but depending on other kings to rule the world. Other powers to rule the world. Like, I, I'm going to get my spiritual house in order so I can go to heaven when I die, but right now I, need, I, I have values that the kingdoms of these worlds have. Jesus becomes more of a moral advisor when it comes to living in the, the, quote, real world. So we find ourselves following leaders of the kingdoms of the world rather than the leader, the king of the kingdom of God. We find ourselves refusing to let go of the kingdoms of this world. And I want you to know this today. This is important, that the world is not neutral. Right? The kingdoms of this world right now are competing with the kingdom of God for your mind, your heart, and your soul. It's not neutral. If you def- go into default mode, the kingdoms of the world will be pulling you away from the kingdom of God. Right? And everything we hold on to on the kingdom of the world, everything that we refuse to surrender to King Jesus, all this physical stuff maybe, Everything we we refuse to be obedient with prevents us from experiencing life in the kingdom. It prevents us from experiencing the treasures of heaven. The values of this world are not the same as the values of the kingdom of God. Can we agree on that? The values of this world are not the same as the values of the kingdom of God. They are two distinct kingdoms. And that can be confusing because we have 2,000 years of Christian history. We have 2,000 years of the church shaping the world in which we live. And some of that is really, really good. There are hospitals and orphanages and all this type of social help in the world because the church, Christians, took initiative at some point in the history and did those things. 
but it can be really confusing because the world can kind of pick up Christianese. They can put church on the sign and not necessarily follow Jesus all that closely. They can put Christian on the, the marketing materials, and that may not be a real authentic representation of what Jesus was asking us to do. So it can get confusing because we can, we can amen and, and call each other brother and sister and, and all of that sort of stuff and have the culture of church without actually being faithful to what Jesus is asking us to do. And so it can be confusing because so much of our culture has been influenced by Christianity that the culture can speak our language and give the appearance of faith. I want you to know this, and this is the the part, like I said, I was over at Hope, and I'm like, wow, I'm really going to say this. Um, But your political party, whatever it is, is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. Your country of citizenship is not the same thing as the kingdom of God. And while there may be overlap in some areas, and and I pray and hope that there is, I mean, that's a good thing, right? That there's things in your life that are ordered according to the way that Jesus would have them to be. That Jesus, through Christians in the world, has, has begun reshaping and reforming the world. So some things kind of look like Jesus. But there will be areas in political parties and cultures and countries that are different than the values of the kingdom of God. That path will diverge at some point. And Jesus is inviting us, like he invited this rich young man, to let go of the worldly things and move both feet into the kingdom of God. Let go of the worldly things so we can grab a hold of him with both hands. I said when I started out, this is hard. I'm not trying to step on toes. I don't get any enjoyment out of feeling like I'm punching people in the nose or anything like that. But Jesus is inviting us to surrender our whole life to him. To let go of all that we have to follow him. To reject habits, practices, traditions that have formed us in ways that may be comfortable to us but not the way that he wants us to live in the kingdom of God. We've all been shaped by this world since the day we were born. The values, the priorities, the ethics, uh, the kingdom of this world are are deeply formative. It's the foundation in which we we stand. The the values of this world are some of the earliest values that we learn. Almost to the point, it's the air that we breathe. It's the current of the river that we find ourselves in. If you're not paying attention, you will just drift to the values of the world. And Jesus says that to experience life with God, you have to let go of all of that. It gets in the way. It's not the kingdom. We're not looking to sprinkle a little Jesus into the kingdoms of this world, but we're trying to enter into an entirely different kingdom. And this is where this message today, the scripture from today, really starts to drive home. Because Jesus highlights the fact that the more you have, the more you have to hold on to. The more power, the more wealth, the more comfort, the more status, the more reputation, the more talent, the harder it is to surrender to God. Again, the whole camel through the eye of a needle thing was not meant to to say, well, God doesn't like people that have stuff. It's meant to acknowledge the reality that it's harder to trust God with everything when you have more to let go of. The harder it is to surrender to God, to let God tell us what is important, to let God define what treasure is according to his kingdom, not according to the world's kingdom. And at this point in preparing the sermon, like I, there was a moment this week where I just stopped and I found myself saying the words that the disciples said, who can do this? 
Who then can be saved? This is what the, <laughs> they heard Jesus, they understood what he was saying, and said, How? Who? Like, how does this happen? How can we live as citizens of God's kingdom while we currently live in the midst of these kingdoms of this world that has all these other treasures, all these other pleasures, all these other comforts, and all these other distractions? Who can do this? How can we do this? And I wrestled with that for a while and prayed about it and thought about it. And I came up with the answer that I think God wanted me to share with you. We practice it. We practice living the values of this kingdom. I'm not sure how this happened or when it happened. I'm a student of church history, and so I'm aware of some of the major movements in church history. But somewhere along the line, Christianity, church culture, started thinking about attending church on Sunday as our primary obligation to Jesus. Like coming to church on Sunday is, is the big box to check. I go to church on Sunday, that fulfills most of my obligation as a Christian. But for most of Christian history, being a Christian meant <clears throat> to live how Jesus commanded us to live as citizens of an alternative kingdom every single day of the week. This unique calling of living the Christian life while living in the kingdoms of this world is hard. Right? This unique calling that Jesus is placing on our lives is extremely difficult, near impossible. We will mess up. We will fall short. We will revert to worldly ways when we get angry or when we're afraid or when we get tempted by something. We, we will. We've been formed by the values and the ethics of another kingdom. And at push comes to shove, sometimes those values emerge. Sometimes we will even mess up because we just didn't know better. Right? We're looking backwards going, oh, that's where I went wrong. The world continues its efforts to form and shape us into its kingdom. However, and this is the good news for today, if this has all felt very heavy and hard, this is the good news for us today. The Spirit is at work shaping us into the kingdom citizens who bear the image of King Jesus. The Spirit is at work shaping us into kingdom citizens who bear the image of King Jesus. And the greatest transformation comes from simple spiritual practices or disciplines that orient our lives towards kingdom living. So when I said, how does anybody live in this kingdom? I said, we practice. So a church service is not only a weekend destination for Christians, but when done properly, the worship gathering is practice for living holy lives in an unholy world. Let me explain what I mean by that. In a church service, we practice carrying others' burdens and offering forgiveness, right? We gather together and we, we, we carry each other's burdens and we offer forgiveness. We practice confessing our failures and our sins, and then we practice being people who reconcile relationships. That's what we do on Sunday mornings when we gather together. We practice receiving forgiveness and grace from God and from other people. We practice praying. We listen to God. We talk to God. When we walk out the doors, the world is going to be filled with voices that aren't God's. But when we gather together, we practice. We learn the voice. We learn to talk to God. We learn to have conversation with God. So here in our worship gathering, if, if we're doing it well, if we're doing it right, and this is what the guides, guides me and my, my 
leadership of a, of a congregation. I'm not concerned about what is entertaining. I'm not concerned about like, what people's preferences are, although I value input. But the goal of a Sunday morning service is to practice living holy lives so that when we encounter an unholy world, we know what we're doing. We've experienced it before. We can live it out in the rest of our lives. And so the invitation for us today, practice small things that line up with the values and teachings of the kingdom of God. Practice the small things that line up to the kingdom of God. But I want you just specifically to pay attention to one element of our worship gathering that I, I usually don't make a big deal about. Um, I, I originally didn't want to go down this path because I don't like to make a big deal about this, but this seems to be what the scripture is about. I've listed a bunch of things we practice, but I haven't yet mentioned what the kingdom's response was to the, this young man's issue. Like, he walked away sad because of a problem, and, and, and Jesus has a response to this, and the, the kingdom of God has a response to that, and, and we should have a response to that. This young man walked away sad because he had great wealth, and the, the solution to that is generosity. We practice being generous people in church because the citizens of God's kingdom are not servants of wealth. They aren't attached to treasures from worldly kingdoms. And like Jesus... Citizens of the kingdom of God understand that wealth is best celebrated when it is given away to care for others. The world will tell us, you, you won't have enough. There's not enough. It's, it's uh, economics of scarcity. There's not enough. And if you don't get a hold of what you want and, and hold on to it, you won't have enough. But Jesus in the Bible tells us that God gives us resources. God provides all of these things so that we can use them to bless other people. We have a church word for this. We call it stewardship. (laughs) Using what God has given us to do the work of the ministry of blessing others. So we have to work hard to become and we have to work hard to stay generous people. How do we do that? We practice it every single week with our tithes and our offerings. Tithes and offerings are not membership dues to belong to a church, nor is it some sort of spiritual uh, prosperity scheme where if you invest this amount, then you'll get this much back at a later date, right? Like divine interest or something like that. Like, that's not what tithes and offerings are. Tithes and offerings are not uh, given just to pay the utilities, although it's nice to have light and air conditioning and heat and all the stuff in the building, or to pay payroll, and it's nice to have a paycheck. Like, but that's not what tithes and offerings are primarily about. A Christian offering, a Christian tithe, is practice being generous people. Making sure that we aren't holding too tightly to the treasures of this world. So when you drop your offering into the box or you go online and put in your digits, um, you are letting go. You're practicing doing what this young man could not do. It's making sure we aren't holding too tightly to the treasures of this world's kingdom because that's not the treasure that we are after. At least it's not the treasure we should be after. And so the ultimate goal of offerings in church is to shape us into generous people in all areas of our lives. In church, we have our work cut out for us. Um, Some of you have worked retail. Some of you have worked in restaurants, food service. If you ask somebody working wait staff right now what their least favorite shift to work is, they'll say the Sunday after church lunch crowd. 
They're the most demanding, yet the least generous people. And that's anecdotal. I don't have data and statistics to back that up, but I've heard that a lot when I go places and people ask me what I do. I'm a pastor, and people will tell me that. Like, and that's sad for a lot of reasons. This pandemic where the world's gone crazy has given us a lot of opportunity to shine as generous, grace-filled people. The world needs generosity and graciousness more than ever before. We have an opportunity to be the people that go above and beyond, realizing that like when I went to go get my haircut a few weeks ago, that a place that normally has 10 uh, stylists had four. They were worn out. They were stressed. They were anxious, trying to keep up with the crowd, trying to do all the things that they were supposed to do. There came a moment where I had to pay, and what ran through my mind was maybe this wasn't as good of a haircut as I've gotten before because this was a new stylist. Or maybe it's there's somebody that's trying their best in a difficult time. Practicing our generosity on Sunday should give us eyes to see needs and help us to let go of the world's treasure to embrace godly treasure. Jesus loved that man that walked away. He invited him to receive eternal life. He invited him to follow him. And yet that man walked away sad, possessing the treasures that this world could offer, but missing out on the treasures that God had to offer. And so I, I think I made a slide for this. I'm trying, again, this is one of those things I didn't do at Hope, so I'm, I've got notes. No, no other slides? Cool. Um, if you, oh, I remember why. If you have your bulletin, look on the, on the back page of the bulletin. There's a list of next steps. Uh, I haven't done a whole lot with this since we introduced it way back then, but there's, these are things that if you feel stuck in your faith or you feel like you're wondering what God wants you to do next, on the back there's uh, a list of things that you could do to move your relationship with God forward. And the very bottom one, I think, one of the ones, is give. This is a next step of faith. This is not the first step. You don't have to show up and be like, oh, I'm going to give all my money. But giving, being generous people is part of being Christians. What the, the, the next step, the give description says, use what God has given you to participate in the work God is doing. Jesus' followers are generous with their time, talent, and resources. The treasures of this world, we, we can possess them, we can own them. It's not a judgment against us if we have them. It's what we do with them. It's how tightly we hold on to them. It's, it's, it's on how much do we trust them. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. I'm just going to remind you that God gives us everything that we have. Not so that we can compete on some societal scale and work our way up a ladder or something like that, but so that it can be used to experience the treasures in heaven. As a pastor, I, the last thing I want for you is to walk away sad. Because your worldly treasures were too great and miss out on the treasures that God has for you in heaven.